What's up, Euphonauts? Uh, welcome to a very special episode of what we're calling the UFO Book Club. And I have some special guests here today. Of course, Brian and Angelo from the Double Density Podcast and Sam Fredrickson from the Not Alone Podcast. How you doing, guys? What up? Good. Hi. Hello. I'm excited to have you all here. Uh, how this came together is like, I, I, how exactly did this come together? I think I suggested it on Twitter at one point because we were kind of chit-chatting about the Heineck book. And I said, this would be great for a book club episode of Our Strange Skies. And uh, it sort of came together because I think I volunteered to edit it. So I think that kind of spurred you on. Yeah, I think so. I think it all comes down to you, Angelo. Of course Absolutely. it does. <laughs> Always comes back to you, man. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to be handing the reins over to Brian now, who he agreed to be the figurehead of, of this and, and throw some questions at us. So, Brian, the floor is yours. Great. So evening, morning, slash whatever time you guys are listening to this podcast. Uh, so, yeah, it's the uh, inaugural edition of the UFO Book Club. Uh, I was trying to think of a smart way of uh, combining all of our podcast names, but... I gave up fairly quickly, so it's just the UFO club. Uh, We're going to be talking about The Close Encounters Man, uh, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs by Mark O'Connell. And basically, it is a uh, a biography of J. Allen Hynek. And now, I know that you, in particular, uh, Rob, do love this man so much. I really do. He, he, I, I admire this man more than I admire most men. Bam. So how did you come to know about him? Uh, when I was, this is going to take me back to the episode that I just did with you guys, uh, uh, the ice cream Satan episode. Uh, when I started talking about doing that Billy Joel project in middle school, I distinctly remember at one point typing the name J. Allen Hynek into like whatever search engine we had at school. It never came back with anything, but like it was a name that I knew from a really young age for whatever reason. Uh, I probably because of unsolved mysteries, because it always comes back to that. It's always unsolved. It always does. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, from there, it's just, uh, uh, after that, uh, the more I researched, uh, the more like the man was really prevalent in all that research. How's about you, Sam? Do you remember the first time you ever read or heard of the name J. Allen Hynek? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't. I feel like so much of what I've learned about UFOs and ufology, it's kind of just been like through osmosis. I've been around people and then it comes in. And I think... I'd heard Hynek's name a lot before, you know, I've been listening to Mysterious Universe and stuff like that forever. Uh, But I think that it was really Rob who kind of impressed upon me the importance of this individual to the point where I knew that he had something to do with UFOs. I knew that he was the originator of the Hynek scale, but I didn't know exactly like how important he was and especially... Uh, you know, his his scientific background that made him so unique to you, uh, especially early ufology. Um, and then it was that I had this weird, like, harebrained idea. It may still one day come to pass of like doing an audio drama about alien abduction, which just sounds like the dream. And I asked Rob, I said, hey, like, give me I need some some books that are going to bring in the whole scope 
of like UFO ufology. I still call it UFOlogy sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's just it just seems natural. Uh, the whole scope of ufology and especially the abduction experience and close encounters of the third kind and stuff like that. And that's when he really threw some Heineck at me and just I started doing some background research and I was like, oh damn, this is the this is the dude, this is the guy. And uh, you know, fast uh, fast love, fast love. That's what people say about it. Fast love. Between me and Alan Hynek. Firstly, Fast Love is my favorite George Michael song, so congrats on mentioning that one. Is that an actual, uh, secondly, is that a song? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. No. It's a great, it's a great George uh, Michael song from the 90s. Oh, wow. All We're right. not going to get sued. Yeah. Don't worry. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Unless Angelo inserts the whole song right here because he's editing tonight. Yes, he is. <laughs> I, will, I will not be inserting random songs. Don't worry. <laughs> There's so many things I could say to that, but I, I won't. Uh, so how's about you, Angela? Do you remember the first time you uh, ever heard the name Jalen Hattick? Yeah, I actually do. It's um, like Rob going back to, to school, but this was even earlier going back to elementary school. We had these books called The World of the Unknown, all about UFOs. And there was one also about ghosts and also one about monsters. And I took it out of the library a lot of times. And there was a section about Project Blue Book in there which fascinated me. Now, keep in mind, uh, I grew up in the 80s, so this uh, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now to be easily able to find information online and things like that. So I had this book. I had seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, kind of got an idea of what the scale was. And little did I know, uh, J. Allen Hynek was actually in Close Encounters mm. uh, for a brief few seconds, and I think we'll end up discussing that later when we talk about the book. Great. And as for me, yeah, when I was a kid, I ended up buying a bunch of uh, random paperbacks, including the uh, Frank Edwards book, UFOs, Serious Business, which I think is one of the best titles of all time. Uh, but also in that uh, sort of lot of books was the UFO Experience, the J.M. Hallig Jacques Vallée uh, book, which I read voraciously. And that was kind of a really good way uh, as a youngster to sort of like gauge how UFOs work. Because I think if I had picked up like a David Icke book or something Ooh. as a baseline, <laughs> it would have just been so much weirder. <sighs> how old are you, Brian? I was like eight or nine probably at that point. Yeah. Yeah. We got like early exposure to UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> if um, it had been David Icke, it would have just been reptilians left. And oh right. yeah. Reptilian, reptilian, reptilian. New world order. I think that would have ruined my life. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure David Icke has ruined plenty of lives. <laughs> Including <laughs> and first and foremost, his own at this point. Yes. <laughs> yes. What do you mean? You've never seen him talk for 12 hours at one of the Wembley stadium, uh, seatings. <laughs> all right guys so first things first this question is for all of you um what do you what you think of the book overall for me i felt like it lacked pictures i could always use more pictures in my books but that's just me uh were Whoa. there things that you loved or things that you hated uh good question great question <laughs> i i didn't i i want to make a confession because i feel very bad about this I didn't actually read the book. Um, I feel like I should just say that right now. I did read part of it. I got about a hundred pages in. So well, that's good. Yeah. Enough. It's not like I just threw it away, but also read the back of the book. I literally just got done recording six hours of talking about project blue book and Heineck. So I was like going through and I was like, Oh, I know this. I know this. I know this. So I figured, okay, whatever. I, you know, I don't have to read all of it. But what I did appreciate was, first off, this guy's writing style. It It's 
very, you know, so often in, in biographies, you end up with a dry novel, but this one really, to me, seemed to capture the, the intensity and the insight excitement of the UFO experience and especially project blue book, uh, the sightings that they're looking at. It was very well written and very well researched as well. How's about you, Rob? What, like, uh, what did you enjoy most and what did you enjoy least, I guess? Or was there something that bothered you about the book? No, I was I, I wasn't really bothered by uh, anything. It's a uh, honestly, I feel like this book is a miracle because uh, essentially, you know, how it came to be written. Uh, Mark was just looking for material for his blog and he goes to one of the people that's uh, holding on to the QFOS files uh, that uh, his that Hynek's organization collected and they're like, hey, would you like to write the definitive biography of J. Allen Hynek? And he's just like, what? What? Are you serious? So um, this book is a blessing in many ways. And uh, for one, uh, what I loved about it most is like you're getting not just the the biography of J. Allen Hynek. You're getting a really nice history of, of ufology. Mm-hmm. Uh included in with um, a lot of his, you know, non-ufological contributions to uh, to the world. And it's and some of them are amazing. Uh, Just um, uh, what he did for uh, astronomy. uh, I don't think most people know like anything about it. So um, I, I don't have any gripes with this book. I don't have any any gripes with any book that has to that is concerned with my UFO dad. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I think the problem, the only problem I had with this book, which I had with every biography is I don't care about you as a child. So therefore Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to skim through the first 25 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then it it was interesting. Yeah. But at least like for this book, like it, it, like his actual childhood, like amounts to like what two pages. Yeah, it's like it's max like five or six, I think, uh, from yeah. what I remember reading it. It wasn't big and it was great. I always love it when a book condenses the first uh, 10 to 15 years of someone's life in like a couple of pages because it doesn't necessarily matter all that much. Uh, I find in a lot of cases, in a lot of these books, it's very self-indulgent. Uh, what about you, Angelo? Well, the only thing that mattered in terms of his childhood was a couple of things like the Halley's Comet thing, him being born under that uh, comes around uh, full circle, actually. And then uh, what I did like about his childhood thing is it kind of gives you a base for why he became what he did, uh, losing both his parents relatively young, uh, did kind of give him some, um, a base for him to kind of be a better person and really work hard at things. In terms of what I thought about the book, I absolutely loved it. There's nothing really to dislike about it. It's written so well. Uh, I believe O'Connell's a, a TV writer, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's how he started. He started writing for Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, and, and there's some really uh, great critical praise. Uh, although <laughs> I was looking at some of the praise for the book, and uh, I'm going to let you guys guess who wrote this one. No serious study of the UFO phenomenon could be complete without a look at Dr. J. Allen Hynek. O'Connell has done a masterful job of interweaving the life of the scientist, stargazer, and space pioneer with an engaging encapsulation of the UFO phenomenon. This is not to be missed. Who wrote that stunning uh, critical player praise? Stephen Greer? I'll be honest with you, I did not study for this test. Uh, it's Jim Mars. 
Wow, good job, Rob. Okay. <laughs> Do you have eidetic memory or something? What the heck, Rob? No, I got the book in front of me. Oh, oh, it's oh, going on the back. oh, oh man. Here I was thinking, like, yo, I love Jim Mars just as much as you do, then, in that case. Well, because uh, I, I, know, I know Brian loves Jim Mars, so I thought it would be uh, kind of fun to stick that in there. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, and uh, look, I have nothing but praise for the book. It's really good. Um, speaking of the book right in front of Rob's face, uh, <laughs> the book establishes a real interesting narrative to explore Heineck's life. You know, he goes from astronomer to G-man and then to a less skeptic scholar and public figure until his unfortunate death in the 80s. I feel like this book read kind of like a cross-section between a love letter to a, a misunderstood man, Rob, like you were saying before, a meditation on modern ufology. I found it very interesting how it kind of managed to not only encapsulate a man's life, but also sort of um, contextualize the idea of modern ufology especially in the united states and uh my question to you i guess guys would be uh do you feel like it captured and i guess sam may not be able to answer this as well (laughs) specifically but uh did you feel like it did a good job of capturing the idea of um the rise uh of the modern ufo flap as well as the phenomenon in general absolutely i think it did a really good job about with doing that uh he he really kind of understood which points to look at. And it kind of grew, you really saw how Heine grew from complete total skeptic hired basically to kind of just bury all this and not let people have a chance to believe in anything to where he became a champion of, of the witnesses, especially he, I think what he, he hated the most Heineck I'm saying was how these really good witnesses would be ridiculed by others for not understanding what they necessarily saw. Now, um, it could, no one's saying what they saw was alien or whatever, but in most of these cases, if not all of these cases, the witnesses were sincere in what they were saying. And Heineck wanted to give these things a second look and it kept getting pushed down into the trash, uh, especially with, uh, it was Project Grudge and Project mm-hmm. Sign, right? Those were the two really bad ones. Well, Sign was, Sign wasn't, terribly bad in and of itself uh it was really grudge where they were just ignoring things and throwing things away and and you know fitting their fitting the facts to their theories as opposed to the other way around okay yeah so that's why um he became i think that's kind of like what flipped a switch in him where he saw how they were treating these things and he turned into somebody who really almost a mission in his life to make sure that not necessarily prove the UFO phenomenon was real, but at least give it thought and not just shrug it off. And um, what a lot of uh, mainstream scientists were doing, and they still do that. And mm-hmm. uh, look, uh, people who haven't heard double density, uh, but you guys know, I'm, I'm very much a skeptic when it comes to everything paranormal, but I do want to give everything a due chance to kind of be looked at. And I don't like to just shrug things off. And that's why I like Heineck so much. I may not have agreed with everything he's, he did, uh, but he's certainly one of the most likable uh, characters in ufology. And one of the snappiest dressers too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. With that pipe. Oh yeah. <laughs> that uh, I, I like how his son described his tie wear as Astro Beatnik. That was yeah. great. 
See, I needed more pictures of that in the book. If there were like 15 or 16 more of those, I would have been totally satiated. I can understand uh, because like um, I actually I'll give this book praise because it doesn't like it doesn't like throw the pictures that they do include at you in like a middle section or anything like that. It's usually in context of whatever they're talking about in the book. But yeah, I have uh, the uh, the picture uh, in front of me right now, the uh, caption reads, uh, Dr. Hynek looking bemused, perhaps after digging through the latest batch of UFO reports from Project Blue Book. Note the example of what his son Paul referred to as his father's Astro Beat ne- what neckwear. Nice. <laughs> it's a great description. It is. It is. Um, I think one of the the best things that this book does is that it really documents his journey from... This is going to be the the UFO phenomenon is going to be a fad, and then we're going to forget all about it. It's it, it it's just something that's you know it's it's Cold War nerves or it's it's post World War Two you know uh, psychological stuff here. But eventually, uh, you know, over time, he's just like, okay, no, this thing is this thing is kind of sticking around, and to the point where it's like. Okay, there's really something going on here, and, and and it deserves serious study. And he met resistance everywhere. Um, and I think I think some of the greatest parts were were they talking about uh, how they would how uh, acting as the in- invisible college, that group of people that were meeting together behind Blue Book's back, trying to put cases, credible cases, towards them to you know. Send them essentially back to Heineck to study. That that, that was great. Uh, sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Um, but I think it really did do a great job of capturing the rise of ufology, his own personal journey, mm-hmm. and the other stuff like the the astronomy stuff. There isn't. It's it's not as prevalent, which is which is okay. Um. Mainly because, like, it, it just focuses on his, like, individual, like, achievements in, in astronomy as opposed to where you're getting the pretty much full history of ufology. But if you're coming at it looking for a great UFO book, you have one right here. Yeah, definitely. And those those little tidbits about his astro- astro- I was say astrology, no, his, <laughs> ast- his astronomy uh, achievements were actually really good because I didn't know any of that. I didn't realize he was so important in the field of astronomy with uh, basically being the one to figure out why stars twinkle and mm-hmm. uh, having a hand in the Hubble Space Telescope, um, which obviously was launched way after his death. Well, not way after, but after it. Uh, but he did have a hand in sort of getting that idea out there. Uh, one of the things I did like about it was like little tidbits of like how uh, they would mention that... Uh, he would go into like uh, when he was at uh, they'd go to the cabin in the woods they had as a family he'd go in the back and he was an avid ham radio operator i i totally picture him like if he was around these days if he was in his prime he'd totally have his own podcast oh yeah oh absolutely Most definitely absolutely <laughs> Uh, so given that, you know, uh, the idea in the framing narrative of the book is going from men who is highly skeptical to someone who is willing to, uh, believe a lot more, uh, 
My next question is, what is your favorite uh, sighting that Heineck had covered and uh, did the book do it justice? Because for me, and it kind of made me laugh, it's the Lonnie Zamora one. Uh, and I kept thinking about Rob and his spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lonnie Zamora is my spirit animal. It is the one case that uh, d- has driven me probably more than any of them. Because uh, when you boil down and look at the facts, you either have a terrestrial object or a non-terrestrial object. There is no other possibilities here. Um, and and they've narrowed it down with other eyewitnesses to say, oh, no, we saw an object that buzzed our car. And uh, Sam made a great point uh, on... I was, uh, yeah, I was on the episode uh, where you covered Lonnie Zamora's sighting. There was a sighting in New York, like, hours before mm-hmm. uh, Lonnie Zamora's sighting. And this farmer walks up into he's checking to checking out this land to see if it make good farmland and he sees an object uh and there are these occupants and they're like hey get us some fertilizer and he goes and gets <laughs> <Yeah>. some fertilizer <laughs> and then he, then they take off in their ship and he leaves the fertilizer and when he comes back the next day the fertilizer's gone which is you know it's a fascinating story it's uh it's one of those stories that one of those little tiny stories in uh a passport to Magonia by uh, Jacques Vallée. But uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that sighting has always uh, meant a lot to me. And um, I didn't think I was going to learn anything new about it. And then my favorite, I think my f- absolute favorite fact in this book is the fact that uh, <laughs> when they're, when the Air Force is driving with Heineck to go investigate this case, they end up getting a flat tire and Heineck's like, no, I'm not waiting around for you. And then he hitches a ride <laughs> in the Socorro. <laughs> that was amazing. He had to get there. He had to. He had to. He has a he, he has a, a a real drive for these things, these aliens, and he's got to be there. You know, <laughs> he's got to dr- he's got to drive, even if his vehicle is not able Cannot to drive. drive. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, for me, Zamora unfortunately was not one of the ones that I got to in the book, but it is in and of itself, probably my favorite sighting that he covers or that, that Heineck investigates simply because it is one of the best indications of something, you know, whether I'm not going to say it's ET or what, but something that is out outside our, our understanding of the natural world, um, from the multiple witnesses, the the fuse glass or the fuse sand like glass that they find exactly where his or the the jet of fire hits um the burnt vegetation for me one of my favorite things about that case is that there's documented a call that comes in to the local news station 15 minutes before the the news station in albuquerque 15 minutes before zamora sees it in socorro saying there's this big white oval thing traveling through the air and it's heading south, you know, towards Socorro. It's it's one of the most interesting sightings. But again, I didn't see how the book covered it. I'm sure they did very well. I did see how they covered um, the death of Captain Mantell. And that was done, I mean, just very, very well. It, that's such an interesting case because it's very well accepted and and understood by now that what Mantell saw was not necessarily an unexplainable vehicle. It was unexplainable at the time, 
but the fact that it was most likely a skyhook balloon um that was a a secret project but what i enjoyed about it was that it said that Heineck changed his opinion here he he saw his original theory which was that it i was believe it was the pro, uh, the planet venus and a few years later he reexamines all of the documents the reports this and that and he comes away and he had the the guts to say i was wrong and the primary thing that made him believe he was wrong was that the ufo's weren't a fad they weren't a craze they weren't over in two or three years you know after all that time he realized that there was something going on um and i just think the idea of, of this individual for no other reason other than just to have it right on the record for him to come and say i was wrong that's a really big thing and when you're looking at government investigations into ufos or really any investigation is into ufos for people to be able to say i was straight up not correct uh and and you know i may have damaged the pursuit of this science in a way that's a big thing and you get to that later with the condon committee as well it's one of the most honorable and and compelling characteristics of j allen hynek i think you make a really good point humility is is very rare in ufology i find especially the ability to change course which i think makes uh, hynek's story even the even more extraordinary given the fact that like you don't necessarily hear that kind of thing ever as you were saying it's just it's this idea of saying i'm wrong based on the facts mm-hmm. which you don't often get to hear from people especially people who um come out of things with a certain viewpoint and attack things uh based on that viewpoint and don't are unable to take a step back a lot of the time well people will just completely ignore facts if it doesn't fit into the narrative they've built for themselves about anything um it's true for for all things but in ufology it seems to happen a lot where no matter what like for example the uh the mj12 documents people uh came out thinking those were totally true and they were proven false more or less. And people are still claiming they're completely true. Um, but uh, talk about favorite UFO sightings in the book. I have a couple. Um, the one that I'd never really heard of, or at least wasn't sure that I'd heard of was the, the Pascagoula abduction. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a fun one. <laughs> yeah. It's just, so it's another egg shaped object, but this one kind of stops like off a fishing pier, a young a young man, an older man, like uh, Charles Hickson and Calvin Calvin Parker, they're they're just sitting there and they see this thing and they kind of get like frozen. And is it it is this one where it's the like the 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 beings that had lobster yes. hands that came yeah. out of it, lobster claws and elephant feet. Yeah. So why don't we have cool stuff like that anymore? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's Angelo's biggest. That's, that's deal. a good question. Yeah, that's the, yeah. Like, why don't we have weird looking aliens anymore, man? I don't well, think uh, people entertain the weird looking aliens yeah, anymore. Exactly. Today's aliens, man, they're not good. Although aliens today, they're not like they used to make them. Well, it should be, you know, Rob. You just said we don't entertain the thought of these aliens anymore. It should be stated they didn't really entertain the thought of those aliens back then. You know, it no. it was extremely hard for people to hear and to accept it. But I mean, with that sighting and with the, the, did the book cover the secret tape that was made? Yeah, it's, it, they made, yeah, they actually had part of the transcript in it's, it. It's terrifying, man. It's chilling to just read that transcript of these two guys 
talking amongst themselves. That's one of the most interesting uh, UFO sightings I've ever heard of as well. And I also think that it it definitely uh, helped Hynek's belief system, I think, too, uh, when he got a handle on this tape and realized that when they were alone that, you know, they were conceivably they saw something. They're not sure what it was, but they were they were terrified of it, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that's the thing. They it didn't seem like they were lying. That's that's the the interesting thing there. It's they saw something. We don't know what they saw except for it was egg shaped. What so what happened to the egg shaped UFOs now? What do you mean? So we don't see egg shaped UFOs as much as as like oh, so yeah, like, yeah uh, they okay. <laughs> like triangles are the popular one. Okay. okay. Rob yeah, is right. here. Yes. Okay, I saw an egg-shaped object in 2015. It's oh. not to say that they're not here. They're, okay, okay, they're, great. You see them. You see them every now and then. They they may not make up the bulk of the reports, but they're there. Um I actually stumbled across an interesting mysterious universe article uh, written by Micah Hanks about uh egg-shaped objects. They're still around. It's just uh you don't see them as the often. The kids don't want them anymore. No, triangles no. are in. Triangles are all the rage. Well, so so I had mentioned another one, and that's the Father Gill sighting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That one's really bonkers. Uh, and what I found funny about it is that he initially uh, thought it was probably Sputnik, and how basically everything at that point was being like tossed aside as like ah, it's Sputnik. It's like that was like the swamp uh, gas of the skies for that time. Well, Heineck was so part a big part of his his life at that time was revolving around Sputnik. He was he was I'm pretty sure he was part of the team tracking it to the point where he was he actually was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He, he was. See, yep. and I didn't even read the damn book. Um Yeah. <laughs> he was on the cover of of the time of Time magazine. Um when they were featuring an article about Sputnik and about the people tracking it and this and that. It's uh I, I'm not too surprised that he started to see it everywhere, even places it wasn't. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a big thing. It, it, he, uh, the way that they stated in the prologue, he designed the first satellite tracking station all across the, the I forget how many stations there were across the uh, I think there were 12. Globe, but yeah, 12 stations. And, and what did they do for like the first, like, uh, it was like, eight months they just tracked where sputnik was going <laughs> yeah and i feel like the book did a really good job of weaving that sort of thing as you're saying before in with the main ufology narrative because i didn't know anything about operation moonbeam which is kind of what this is all about in terms of uh Heineck's raison d'etre in like in the in the 50s in an official capacity so i thought that was super intriguing and i had no idea about that sort of thing about the idea of people teaming up to like watch the skies at different parts of the night yeah Right. Like that, that, that just kind of blew my mind. I was like, holy crap. Talk about archaic stuff. We take, we take that for granted. (laughs) Well, yeah, they had nothing floating around the earth at that point. This was like, it was brand new space. There was no space junk, no Verizon satellites, nothing. It was just no Tesla cars. No Tesla cars. cars. Yeah. How's about that? What a time to be alive. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, just as an aside, I think Heineck would have lost his mind to see those two rockets fly, well, oh, those three, gosh. and then two of them just come back down to Earth and land like they were like dancers. It was amazing. I rewatched the film of that like 37 times just to make sure no one was playing a trick on me. 
and like it looks fake yeah right? like that they just mm. reverse yeah, the does. film right instead of them going up they show them coming down in in reverse but it's it's insane it's so crazy i love it uh so uh Heineck's work on project science slash project grudge and also project blue book and other communities put him at odds with the burgeoning ufo community a lot of the time as his approach was often very skeptical in nature the book positions Heineck's journey through a series of uh, come to jesus moments and i think we've mentioned those before like the lani zamora's mm-hmm. the tape the pascagola stuff and so he realizes that these witnesses may have more credibility to them than he first thought as well as he gets his hands on a lot of evidence um that may suggest ulterior motives than uh, the official government line. So some critics of Heineck's legacy, however, have argued that his turnaround has perhaps been a bit disingenuous and others have gone deeper down the rabbit hole and claim that he is just an actor of the state. So I'm going to leave that statement there and see what you guys have to say about, uh, you know, this kind of oppositional uh, way of thinking about him as someone who's still uh, towing the governmental line, who's nothing more than uh, a well-positioned hack, if you will, because that is um, a thread of his legacy that exists um, that I feel has diminished over time. But, you know, especially in the 70s when he broke away and started doing his own stuff, a lot of people were still accusing him of just, you know, uh, being the man. Hmm. Well, yeah. So I think Heineck was way too sincere to be that type of government shill. Uh, mm. it's, it's like he was he was so at odds with the heads of these of, of Blue Book and of Grudge, uh, especially with uh, Quintanilla. That guy was not cool. No, he wasn't. <laughs> no, he was a grade A douchebag. Seriously. To, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but for him, like, he put his credibility on the line uh, with the Dexter Hillsdale sightings uh, in Michigan in 66, you know, coming out and saying swamp gas. But what I loved about the book was that they, O'Connell almost shapes it like uh, this is a conspiracy. Like he'd been led this way the whole time. Like, uh, okay, well you've got uh, the one with the one witness who's saying, Oh, I thought it was swamp gas at first. And like, okay, well, you know, I'd, I'd probably follow that line too, you know, and keep going. And then there was some uh, statement in the paper saying, uh, you know, Heineck's going to have an answer about this. Pretty sure it was swamp gas or something like that. And uh, there was like some weird, uh, somebody came forward saying that they saw Heineck after he had just gotten off the phone and he looked like he was like white as a ghost and, and nervous and stuff like that. So, so and that somebody that somebody was the sheriff. Like this is uh, the story was really well researched by his name's Harry Wilness. He was a a public school teacher in Dexter Hillsdale area during the, the sightings. He researched it for 51 years. And that was, was something that he brought to light is that the sheriff recalled him. They were essentially out in the the swamps. He was gathering evidence and stuff. And he says, you know, Sheriff, I've got no idea what this is. They go home. Hynek takes a call or go back to the station. Hynek takes a call, leaves, comes back, and he's muttering to himself, well, I guess it's swamp gas. It's swamp gas. And uh, it is, you know, if if we can trust that researcher and if we can trust his sources, who I think unfortunately had passed away at the time that he really went public with this. Uh, there's more than enough of a, of an idea of a conspiracy or a cover up, at least in that, that regards. 
there's a lot that kind of led him to the whole swap gas thing. And when he said it, I can he, he kind of wanted to backtrack almost right away, but mm-hmm. he really was pushed into that corner. That press conference was called like super fast. He had no time to kind of come up with anything. And he was kind of forced into the situation where all these people were staring at him and he had to say something. And it's like, it's almost like he blurted it out like, oh, swamp gas. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, and the, and you could tell like it it just been forced upon him, you know. Like I've got to I've got to toe this line, and like in in all the time that it, in reading this book, to me that is really the only time that he's ever really towed the line. If you look at the early stuff with uh, Sign and Blue Book, uh, he's basically the skeptic. He's playing the skeptic. That's just his uh, the way that he's taking it. This is the only time in this book where he is basically gone with the whole government towing the government line. And it's so it, it's so kind of weird. It's like he was forced into this corner because he just didn't have any explanation that he could go off of. And um right. And I think that's the only reason why. It's like he he had no other he had nothing else to offer. So, and I feel like the book does a really good job of recontextualizing this whole incident because a lot of people, a lot of his detractors use the swap gas thing as sort of like a, the central argument to a thesis that he was nothing more than a government mouthpiece a lot of the time because, you know, swamp gas, come on, dude, like get with it, et cetera, et cetera, where I think this book does a really good job of recontextualizing uh, the entire incident uh, to sort of point to the fact that there was a conspiracy that he was not a part of, but was forced, uh, as you're saying, to toe the line with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the greatest statements, I think it was from uh, Frank Manor's wife, who was mm-hmm. like right after it, like, I'm not college educated, but I know what swamp gas looks like. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's important to note as well that that two things. One, at that conference, or I don't know if it was at the conference or if it was in later like reports and newspapers, he explicitly states, I'm not saying that swamp gas is... Uh, he says, I'm not making a blanket statement on the reality of the entire UFO phenomena. So immediately he is. He's trying to say, like, well, this may have been swamp gas, but that doesn't mean that everything is, is you know, that, that easily explained away, mm-hmm. which is very daring for him in his own way. He is in the background coming to these different conclusions and things like that, but he doesn't ever officially break with the air force publicly until the hearings that come from this uh uh account which takes place oh i can't remember the exact date but it takes place uh i think just a few months after in front of the uh congress the the armed services or armed forces committee and that's the first time quentin ellis says okay everybody uh, it's me and Heineck and the secretary of the air force. And we're all going to say that UFOs are bunk and Heineck for the first time, he says, no, I, I know what I'm supposed to say, but I'm not going to say that. And, and his actions led to the creation of the Condon committee from there. Um, he, he was developing and he was, he had his own private thoughts, but that's all they could be at that point is that they were simply private in the background. Um, he wasn't able to publicly state it. And I kind of mentioned this to Rob before uh, we were chatting in the DMs. And 
I said, everybody, you kind of, they say that Hynek turned overnight and that's something that hurts his credibility and, and this and that. But in reality, his turn took 20 years. Like it was from the moment that he started investigating UFOs for the Air Force up till Blue Book was shuttered in 1970. Like that entire time he was developing, it wasn't an overnight sort of change, you know? Definitely not. And I think uh, those, I think the congressional hearings you're referring to were in 68, right? So, uh, and also the thing is that like a lot of people only had the the public facing stuff, right? So they saw his work and then suddenly he gets up to these congressional hearings mm-hmm. and he's, he's standing up for himself for the first time. But were he to like live in current times and like have a blog of his thoughts and right. stuff, then like, I think it would have been way easier to sort of been like, oh, this is actually a man who's taking in facts and uh, realizing that there's a lot more to it than he first thought. Yeah, 100%. Um, so sort of related to that, how do you guys feel that the establishment by the establishment, I mean, governmental agencies, uh, ranked members of the armed forces, et cetera, are depicted in this book? The narrative suggests that um, privately, mostly uh, Jalen Hayek was often at loggerheads with these projects as he had all of these uh, moments and realizations and his process was sort of evolving. And um, some of these people he dealt with were downright dismissive and on the extreme edge of skepticism, too. So I felt like. Uh, it was a really interesting way in which he, uh, in which O'Connell managed to sort of position Heineck outside of a lot of this, oppositionally, but still working within the confines um, of the systems created uh, to observe and address a lot of these issues. Well, Rob was right in saying uh, uh, Condinello was a total douche. He was. He, he really was. He was. He was just there to de- debunk left and right, left and right. Um, I think the only person that comes off with any bit of humanity in this book, at least uh, in terms of the government, is uh, Rupelt. Mm-hmm. Rupelt, he, he, they may not have trusted each other very much, but I think they respected each other enough to uh, the point where they could work together. And I mean, like, even as Rupelt's going out, he, you know, he has them go and investigate a, a sighting, which was kind of big because uh, at that point, you know, Heineck was pretty much at a desk job, just looking at reports and saying, oh, well, it's this. Oh, well, it's that, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. Beyond that, you don't really get much from the subsequent uh, Blue Book heads other than Quintanilla. And um, <laughs> like some of the things that he says in that book, I'm just like, wow, holy crap, dude, you really are a great A douche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was it was basically deny at all costs. That was yeah. the mission. Like they just, you know, the military, they had a mission. The mission was to make sure that this, uh, whatever it is, doesn't get into the, the collective conscience of the American people and that they become afraid of it. They were out to prove that there was nothing to this phenomenon, nothing to UFOs. They were just all uh, either uh, faked or hoaxes and misidentifications, whatever it was at all costs, prove that this is not a threat to the American people and that they shouldn't waste their time with it. Yeah. And like they, they keep coming back to this narrative of, I don't think it's the, I, I struggled with this when I was reading the book where is this the government trying to cover up something or is this the government trying to keep like the public calm? Because definitely after the Mantel sighting, there was you know, hey, we've got to put a quash on this because people are going to get out of hand. People are going to start freaking out, you know, and we got to put a quash on that. And uh, 
even in the book, they talk about how many times they went back to that sighting and reevaluated it, reevaluated it like three or four times um, as, as the years went by. Uh, and you can tell that most of these things, like um, the Conda Committee is basically, uh, it's, you know, it comes from the O'Brien panel, which was put there to, you know, deal with the Dexter Hillsdale sighting. And of course, uh, Carl Sagan was on that on that panel, and then uh, they had for the longest time trouble finding a university that wanted to do the study. Until you know, the University of Colorado is like, "Oh, hey, you're going to go throw three hundred thousand dollars our way? Sure, we'll we'll take a look at it and <laughs> just debunk the hell out of it." Um, <laughs> and then you know, hopefully, tuck it away. And and even with the Robertson panel, that was a a reaction to the flap in uh, Washington D.C. So, is this you know the government saying no? We gotta we gotta we gotta cover this up, or is this the government saying hey we we gotta keep the public calm here? You know, and and this is how we're gonna do it. I I love that the head of the O'Brien uh, one was called Brian O'Brien. <laughs> Fantastic name! Don't you dare laugh. No, I'm gonna see yourself out of this conversation, Angelo. Please. All right, I quit. Uh, yeah, Rob, you bring up a really interesting point because when I was reading that, I had that exact same thought of whether or not you know um, these uh, army personnel were empowered to do what they were able to do because of the fact that they knew there was nothing and they just wanted to dismiss it outright, or that they knew there was something and that they had to sort of uh, contain it and control the messaging. And beyond that, I was curious to think like how high up this went because a lot of these uh, members seem to be. S- high ranking enough that you know um they were on the upper echelons of uh whatever part of the government they were at so i was kind of thinking of you know whether or not this actually was a conspiracy in the classical sense of the word mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and like uh, even to go back to the dexter hillsdale sighting i feel bad for Heineck mostly because every practically every single witness that he talked to was unreliable <laughs> Like Frank Manor was unreliable. He changed his story at least four different times to four different, you know, news agencies. Uh, not to say that he didn't see something, but like, get your story straight, man. Mm. Well, he um, had said it was swamp gas, didn't he? No, it wasn't. He didn't say it was swamp gas. What he said was at first that he it was a pyramid with a rounded top. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in another uh, another interview, he said, oh, I couldn't make out a form. And then in another one, he said it was a rotating red light. And then in the final one, it was a pyramid with a porthole. So I understand why he was kind of pushed into that corner, because he's unreliable. He may have seen something, but he's unreliable. Uh, He didn't end up talking to more than two witnesses uh, for the Hillsdale sighting, even though there were more than 80. Actually, he only talked to three. Um all all along the way i'm i'm just like empathizing with this man and i just feel bad for him i feel bad for my ufo dad <laughs> i think the unreliable um observations and uh the nature of the witnesses fed into the trope that the armor is trying to say that people are too stupid to identify what's in the sky so we're going to do it for them mm-hmm. right right and and like when you when you go and you read the ufo experience um, when he when he comes out with it, like uh, we're talking six years later, he reverses that and says, "No, anybody can. We may, you know, put more stock into the trained, you know, eyewitnesses, the the, the, the trained observers. Okay, 
but anybody can be a reliable eyewitness. All you have to do is ask the right questions. And and that's that's what I love about the man. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially where it's such a uh you just see the development there, you know, his official his official position at the beginning of Blue Book especially was I've got the facts, I've got the theories, they're all going to sync up, and if they don't sync up, then the witness must not be credible, and if the witness is not credible, then the account is not credible, or it gives me license to completely ignore this or completely ignore that. And to see that change from <laughs> from that to Pascagoula, and you've got these lobsters, and they've got elephant feet, and they've got freaking carrots coming out of their head, and and there's a football like <laughs> yeah. eye, and yet, and yet he was so convinced by this that he got into public heated debates with other uh, astronomers, Carl Sagan being one of them, putting his reputation on the line and essentially flushing it down the toilet because he realized that these witnesses were reliable, even though the stories that they told were the most fantastical he'd ever heard. It's it's a beautiful development to see in an individual. And I and I I love how they actually have the uh, the the uh, aliens from the the Pascagoula uh, incident in mm. the book. I like the depictions; so great. I love that. Who drew that picture? Artwork by Anthony Ranfone. Okay, it says so. Not any of the not the witnesses or anything. No, no, it was uh, no it was somebody else. Yeah. What I found interesting is what made him completely shift his view on it is. He had mentioned it was the persistence of the phenomena that finally caught his attention. That's yeah. mm-hmm. what, because he, like he, like we had said at the beginning, they were thinking this was just going to be a passing fad. People were just going to stop seeing these things. Who cares? It's just going to go. It was all because of Kenneth Arnold and his his weird nine winged things that he saw. They were crescent shaped and then came out that they were flying saucers. All this stuff. It was just a fad, but it wasn't, and it kept going and going and going. So he wanted to get to the bottom of it. And that's like how the book ends, like beautifully in in the passage. It says, there's one fact about UFOs you see that Heineck appreciated better than anyone and that causes so many to keep believing. It is the fact that no one can deny and no one can explain the phenomenon persists. That, 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 uh, so poetic. That's some powerful like, stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I think that's what I... It, like I had to skim to the end because God, it's been so crazy lately. But I, I, I'm proud of myself. I made it through most of this book, but um, it didn't end on that, you know, downer of, oh, this is how he died. You know, this is this is how it came to the end. And, and instead, it became about the work and not the man. Like the the work, you know, going on. What we continue to do you know continue to look into this phenomenon because it does keep going on people keep seeing things so yeah i love i love that about this book like to death yeah one could say it ended on a high neck note (laughs) yes oh yeah (laughs) um (laughs) one other thing that i forgot to mention when brian was slandering the good name of high neck and saying that he was a government i was speaking as a mouthpiece of uh of the people who criticize him he was remaining neutral yes sure um i understand <laughs> <laughs> the other sam's getting chilly up the here the other yeah, well 
you live in Canada, so it's always chilly up <laughs> Wait, there. Wait, are you from sure? I understand. Do you see any like? celestial bodies casting shade outside right now you know it's heavy it's heavy Um, (laughs) it is worth noting right so i think rob kind of mentioned did you say is it pronounced sufos or qfos qfos so i say qfos QFOS. so the center of ufo studies right the biggest reason why i cannot believe or even even entertain the fact that jayon heineck may have been a shill um is the fact that when QFOS's funding ran out when when all of that was kind of going downhill. It's still around. It's still a great resource, but it's now nowhere near as big in scope as it was. He moved all of those files into his home, like so that he could continue working on it. He could continue documenting the phenomena and, and keeping the center alive. He just brought all of that crap into his house and and shared a home with the center for UFO studies in a way. And to me, if you're a government shill and your, your, um, you know, bogus center goes down, then it goes down and you're not going to do that. But I mean, to inconvenience yourself that way for the, for the science, for the research, that's one of the biggest reasons why I just can't buy that idea. And his health was starting to fail as well at that point. Mm -hmm. So the effort it took for him to do all this was, was pretty, uh, pretty high. Just as a note, Sam, I think you described what a hoarder is. Well, so just, uh, I know <laughs> my fair share of hoarders, and none of them are as cool as J.M. <laughs> Heineck, so. Well, well, okay, so speaking of KUFOs, one of the questions I had for you guys is, how do you feel about the roles of non-governmental UFO researchers, such uh, research centers such as KUFOs and MUFON? And I know that some of you are members of this organization and may, you know, have an active role in um, certain capacities. So it's kind of interesting to sort of uh, pick your brains about how you f- feel about these organizations, um, both given Heineck's legacy as well as the work that they do that I think a lot of official places refuse to do. Hmm. Um, it, it depends on how objective each of them is. Because, you know, I, I yeah, I just joined MUFON. Me um, too. MUFON, yeah, and Sam, uh, it, it, they have had a track record of kind of being this large body that keeps to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've seen in, in other places where the government and um civilian research groups working together um most famously in Belgium during the Belgian wave in the 90s uh the government was the air force uh, over there was getting so many reports a day seeing people seeing these triangles that they had to eventually kick it to civilian ufo groups to ask their help um and i think that's the fatal flaw of uh, the government studies uh, of Blue Book, you had these uh, civilian groups start to emerge in the 50s. You had APRO, you had NICAP, and still the government like did its own thing. It, it would have been a different story if they would have worked together. And even with the Condon Committee, they tried to do that. They tried, and, yeah. And, and, and NICAP wasn't having any of it. NICAP was was done with it. They, I'm pretty sure they ended up leaving it because, like, oh well, no, this they their their attitude was no, this doesn't exist. Well, you know, yeah, is, they, there's nothing there. They pulled out after the low memo came to light, yeah. where the low memo states that, and oh God, do I hate Philip J. Class so much? The, <laughs> oh yeah, the yeah. low memo. Oh, Angela, how do you feel about Philip? 
I I I don't like the way he came across as a, as a skeptic. He wasn't a he wasn't very thoughtful in the mm. way he he was in terms of like a scale of like one to ten to be a debunker. He's like a fifty. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. just debunk yeah. at all cost. Whereas I don't consider myself that skeptical when it comes to these things. I don't try to just anything. Anything to 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 just completely make somebody look foolish, and that's what I didn't like about him is mm-hmm. that sometimes he made it his goal to make people look actually foolish instead of maybe explaining. You know what? This is why I think this is a balloon and not uh, a craft of some kind. Just yeah, try to yeah. lay it down and explain it properly. And he, I think he was deluded in in, in the way in the way he actually looked at things. He just kind of. But he had his own way of thinking. That was it. There was no way around it. There was no reasoning with him. And that's something that's difficult. When you're researching something, when you're trying to come to the conclusion of something, you need to be reasonable as as well and have some self-awareness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you want a perfect example of that, uh, I urge everybody to go to YouTube. Look up... The video, there's a video of Ed Walters on Oprah and Philip J. Class just tears him a new one. Well, uh, it, it is, is it Ed is Walters, though. But listen, <laughs> I love Ed Walters. The, he's my freaking hero, man. But come on. Listen, here's the thing, though. Like, he didn't have any facts mm-hmm. to back himself up. He just went on the offensive. Yeah. And you have shades of that in... Carl Sagan going on the Dick yeah. Cavett show and taking apart the cat, uh, the Pascagoula so, guys. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem, right? The problem is not to be a skeptic. It's fine to be a skeptic. You need to be a skeptic. The problem is ad hominem attacks. The problem is, is looking at the individual instead of the event. And while those mm-hmm. two have to find a balance and have to find a way of, of working together, class would would ignore the event completely. He wasn't debunking events. He was debunking individuals. And not only is that bad science, it is. It's it's a bad way to conduct yourself as a human being. Well, yeah, it's, it's just one logical fallacy after another. Mm-hmm. And uh, skeptics pride themselves, like myself included, that when we see a logical fallacy, we try to actually uh, point it out to make sure that everything is getting its own due course of the way we need to look at it, not just using, you know, like uh, Brian and I the other night were talking about uh, how people think the full moon causes all kinds of different things. And that's just confirmation bias. That's one of the classic logical fallacies where you have an idea of how something works and you look for it to prove what your initial idea was. But that's not how things work. Right, and it's kind of like when people get on the uh, astrological train and then they're like, oh, it's in retrograde. Oh, that's why my life is falling apart right now. I'm like, please stop. Please stop. I'll have you know, my coven's been praying for you, Rob. (laughs) Have they? No. (laughs) (laughs) As a rule, covens don't really pray anyway, you know. No, I was gonna say. Well, they pray upon. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm not uh, well versed in uh, witches and warlocks. I'm not gonna try and hide that one. That's all right. That's all right. 
So, but like talking about that and skeptics, uh, another uh, arch skeptic, James Randi, had a good experiment with uh, uh, horoscopes and all that stuff in astrology, where he had everybody uh, give all their information in a classroom, and then um, came back like the day after, I think, with a very specific horoscope for each specific person, and then handed them all out, and then read, and then asked everybody what they thought, how close it came to their own life. And the vast majority of people raised their hands and said, oh my goodness, this is perfect. This really aligns with what was going on in my life right now. He's like, okay, so now take your horoscope and give it to the person behind you. And everybody had the exact same horoscope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's just like cold reading, right? Like John Edwards does that all the time uh, to unsuspecting Mm -hmm. masses. James Randi is is an interesting one. I don't know enough about him, but I did watch that documentary i don't know if honest it's still liar. on netflix yeah an honest liar he seems like a, a a a fair fella other than i guess to win his million dollar prize you have to stake a million dollars as well which doesn't seem I didn't fair know that. To me. yeah that doesn't seem like he really is in the interest of finding something paranormal yeah that's it's i thought no i i didn't know that there was he had to put your own million at stake i never had seen that's that. what i'd heard i can't remember where i, I heard it that, or who yeah. told me it i could be wrong but that's what i heard yeah i don't i don't know if that's right yeah, but you I guys talk i'm well, gonna google so. it you guys, okay, you you guys talk. Well, i'm gonna be opening up a gofundme for us to be able to match the funds for the million dollar challenge james randy we're coming for you we're not sure how we're gonna do it we're not sure why we're gonna do it but we're, we're gonna do it as a group i uh, James Randi's pretty great, though. I like, I like when he was on uh, Carson and he totally dismantled Yuri Geller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That no, was I, comical. That was pretty great, yeah. Yeah, didn't he also challenge Sylvia Brown to get tested? Yeah. yeah. And that, uh, that did not end, uh, end well at all? No. No, not at all. Yeah, Sylvia Brown. Oh, boy. I haven't heard that name in a while. There you go, Angelo. Bring you down memory lane. Um, so <laughs> that's and, okay. They're all just offshoots of Nostradamus. Let's just get it out of the way. <laughs> my personal Lord and Savior, Nostradamus, uh, has predicted that this would happen without a hitch tonight. So I'm glad that there was a quatrain which spoke to me about this. I'm I'm happy there was too, and uh, I'm happy that there was one um, that you could just interpret that way. I'm sure there were plenty, but. Um, you know, I'm glad that 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 one has kept this yeah. whole thing from derailing. Did Nostradamus <laughs> mentioned that th- three would be covered in great white particles and one would not. <laughs> Wait, is that the is that the uh, quatrain about the sash that you had? No, it's a, it's about the snow and and poor Sam having no snow. The one about the sash is totally different. Oh, well, that, well, yeah, that's that's something we could discuss on an offshoot episode called Brian predicts Nostradamus's or reinterprets Nostradamus's quatrains for about six or seven hours straight. Uh, it'll be a marathon. It'll be like a PBS marathon. Please, please donate, guys. If you want to know what we're talking about, I think uh, you can go listen to some of our old uh, back catalog of Double Density. Thanks for the plug, Angelo. Oh, yes, yeah. I tried. Yeah. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> He's going to, uh, before you know it, uh, Brian's going to be having lunch with John Hoagland. And, or, I can't even get his name right. Jesus. John Hoag or yeah, yeah. Dick Hoagland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, Richard C. Both Hoagland, of man, them. with the perfect you, you hair. I would love with Richard Hoagland. And Hogue, you know, like, man, that would Do be you an amazing lunch. I would not talk. Like, there would just be motor mouthing going on for a good two hours while I ate my salad and drank my soda. You're just staring at, at John Hogue's beard. <laughs> yeah, just just hoping that there's a quatrain that talks about his beard and our chance encounter. Um, oh, there's got to be. There's got to be. 
so speaking of skeptics, uh, the elephant in the room, Carl Sagan, uh, there's a chapter in the book named Heineck versus Sagan, which I loved. Um, beloved by some, reviled by others, Sagan is like Heineck, a somewhat polarizing figure uh, in ufology. How did you feel about his depiction in this book? And I know that some of you may have one answer. Others, like Angelo, may have another answer. So I'm kind of interested in hearing about this. I did not get to this chapter. <laughs> I wish I had. I didn't know it was there. I will say I totally respect Carl Sagan. Uh, if not only just for Cosmos, um, I actually have a few of his different books, and I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with the 99% of the way he conducts himself, other than especially that that Dick Cavett show episode, um, wherein he just ripped, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the Pascacula guy apart. There's nothing necessarily wrong with him there other than potentially, you know, maybe he did believe in UFOs the whole time and he was just covering it up and this and that. But, you know, he's a he's a good scientist at the very least. So I just wanted to put that out there. I don't hate Carl Sagan. Um, It's good. It's good. Well, like to be like early on in Sagan's career, there is this notorious paper that was floating around where Sagan basically believe you know he stated his beliefs that uh he was an ancient astronaut theorist uh essentially no that, uh, aliens <laughs> aliens visited us a million years ago i think or, you're confused you know, with uh Tsuklos. no <laughs> i don't no, think i'm not anyone I, has ever not, confused i read <laughs> i read a book okay i read a book it's called the sagan conspiracy i think his name is donald zygudis and he goes on a tirade for about 200 pages where he talks about he, – he rips into Frank Drake like every other page, it seems like, in the Frank Drake equation. Okay. And then he keeps citing this paper, which is known to exist. And, you know, they bring it up in this book too. You know, the uh, – how, you know, early on he, he – that was his belief. Um but eventually, you know, his his views changed over time to the ardent skeptic. And and I kind of understand where Sagan is coming from, because, like, he wants to you know, we're when this occurred, you're seeing funding pull out of like NASA because we've gone to the moon. We don't need to do that anymore. And you're seeing some of that funding being pulled back. Um, have you have you guys ever heard the uh the story of how uh mr rogers got pbs funded oh yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a whole there's yeah. a video of him at, mm. uh, at, a, at a senate hearing or something talking about yeah it. yeah he basically just charmed the hell out of some senators and you know he got his funding well that's what was happening is like all this stuff was losing its funding and i kind of understand why sagan wanted to play that role on the other side, though, I think there's a better way to play that role, you know, uh, because uh, the debate that that is mentioned in that chapter, like Sagan even refutes himself and, and he keeps, you know, stating things over and over again. And it's like he keeps saying funding will be given to cases where there are good evidence. And Heine keeps bringing up cases there, where there are pretty good pieces of evidence and. And then it comes down to, well, Sagan's the ultimate decider of what good evidence is. Well, that's not going to work. Because, yeah, if you keep moving the goalposts, then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. if you keep moving them back, then. That's another logical fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, when I was reading the book, I felt like it almost, like, 
O'Connell's description of Sagan almost dripped with like a, a bit of like douchiness almost mm-hmm. in like the self-righteous way in which he was presenting himself during this particular debate, which I thought was a very interesting way of sort of framing it. While I agree with maybe some of his comments, uh, the way in which he was presenting himself uh, didn't come off uh, as likable as he probably thought it was mentally. Right. Um, but I, also, too, we don't even have the video of this. All we have is a partial transcript that uh, I, I forget. It took like it. six years to come to light. Yeah. Like in some yeah. obscure like UFO newsletter. So, uh, I mean, they're going to be biased to begin with, because if you look at the UFO community, guarantee you back then they weren't a big fans of Carl Sagan. And just as right now, a lot of them are not fans of Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Yes, you know, I I get that because if you bring it back to the to the J. Allen Hyatt quote, and I I love this man, you know, largely for this quote, too. And it's, you know, ridicule is not part of the scientific method and the public should not be taught that it is. And that was on full display. Uh, At least that's how it came off in that chapter. And and it's and it's a short chapter. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like, like three what? pages. Uh, it's yeah. The, yeah, it's the shortest chapter in the book. So, you know, take yeah, that for what you will. I was relieved to so, see it was such a short short chapter. I also just... <laughs> the one thing that bothers... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Wow, well, I also just don't feel like a man who can write one of the most beautiful novels about about alien contact. I don't feel like that man can can do that without having some part of him that at least wants to believe. It just doesn't make sense to me that he truly was as as stony, you know, stone-faced against it as he wanted. And, you know, I'm not saying that he completely, right, the, the allegation is that Heineck's secretary says that Heineck says that Sagan said that he truly did, <laughs> right? He truly did believe in UFOs and he, he wishes he could act like Heineck did, but he can't. I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but I am saying that there there's no way that he could truly feel that amount of animosity to it and yet create contact, one of the, the greatest works of art about alien contact ever made. It just doesn't compute. That's my big knock against Sagan is that he I don't necessarily I understand what you're saying in terms of maybe he does have a heart of gold and he hopes that the saucer people take it with him. But at the same time, I felt like he was playing like both sides of the field in that like in his nonfictional life, there is a large amount of skepticism and not clearly defined rules into which he wants to um look at different pieces of evidence because he you know as he was saying in this conference it's like well i decide you know what's good evidence and on the other hand like writing contact right so i felt like it's kind of duplicitous in terms of like being like a two-spirited kind of person so i i find it weird that it hasn't it wasn't reconciled properly i guess yeah well we don't have enough information to go on from that whole um debate they had but it did seem that they had a contentious relationship the thing what's interesting is that Heineck was uh, the Sagan of like the 50s because he was going on TV shows talking about science. Then kind of Sagan took over and now it's uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's turn. But Sagan and and Neil deGrasse Tyson are much more skeptical of the whole uh, UFO phenomenon or not that they're skeptical of UFOs in and of themselves. They're unidentified flying objects. They... I don't. I mean, I'm like Sagan didn't never really said they didn't exist. Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't say they don't exist. He just does not think that 
whatever people are seeing is extraterrestrials. That's the hypothesis he's not keen on saying is true. And to a certain extent, I can I can understand that from a science point of view, there is no 100% concrete proof to say these for sure are extraterrestrials. Like, and a lot now the popular thing is to not think it's extraterrestrial, right? The, the ETH has totally lost um, any sort of standing where now it's more like extra dimensional, like Jacques mm-hmm. Vallée, that's what kind of he's a proponent of. And well, I, I think too, like you know, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, especially in the UFO community is still pretty prevalent. Like I think we're more open to yeah, other that, hypotheses. Yeah. Um, but ETH really pushes the field and it's been pushing the field for over a hundred years. Yeah, pretty you know, much. Yeah. And, and that's the weirdest thing. Like the two strangest things that we now, like people have adopted as real, uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis and tinfoil hats, and they both started in fiction. So, and then, you know, they push that, that, uh, that down the field for, so so mm-hmm. long to the point where uh, a lot of the UFO community they they will praise books like the Mothman prophecies, but when it comes to something like the Eighth Tower, and we're talking about ultra terrestrials, interdimensional beings, well, no, that doesn't fit into what we're talking about. And you have the psychosocial hypothesis, which I believe you know makes up part of this. Absolutely, because uh, you use that hypothesis to rule out the the bad data. Um, you've got the uh, the inner Earth and mm-hmm. and and the dang reptilians just yeah. spilling out of the center of the Earth, and they're sucking and, our blood. They're and sucking, they're sucking our, our, blood. our dang blood, <laughs> and supposedly Credo Mutwa peed on one. I don't know. It's so weird. Oh, well. Boy. Uh, just a closing thought about uh, Carl Sagan versus Jalen Hynek. Do you think it's a question of uh, fashion battle? You know, uh, turtlenecks versus Astro Beatnik. Astro Beatnik um, wins. Uh, yeah, Astro Beatnik. I'm Astro Beatnik all the way. But like, like you can tell Mark has a bias in this book. He's oh, not yeah. A, yeah, no, no, no. But like, he's always talking about Carl Sagan flipping his hair. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, the flipping hair turtleneck uh, yeah. pastry eating yeah. guy. Yeah. 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 It's like, um, your bias is showing there, Mark. Like, take it easy, buddy. Yeah. I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit biased towards Carl Sagan. He's always been like a hero of mine. I didn't really uh, like the depiction of him in this book. And we can't even be sure it was exactly accurate. An other, accurate depiction. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Um, whereas I feel the depiction of Heineck is really accurate. He, this is how he was. He was probably one of the most honest people in this whole field where that if he didn't know something, he was very happy to say he didn't know. And he was also happy to tell you when he was wrong, which is, like we yeah. said earlier, the most important thing. And as much as I love Carl Sagan and uh, his book, Demon Haunted World, is one of my favorite uh, books of like all time, he seemed more of someone who was less willing to say that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. He's not right. one to come out and say he was wrong. He might, but I don't remember him ever doing that really. Uh, but humility still, is a weakness. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the thing with with Carl Sagan, though, and a lot of these people in, in SETI, like even you know Frank Drake and uh, Seth Shostak, all these people, they're never going to tell you. Like all of them believe there's life out there. Like don't let any anybody say that. Oh, these scientists don't even think there's any life in the universe. That's not true. They all believe that with how vast the universe is, it's almost impossible for there not to be life out there. Where they draw the line is that they do not see any proof that aliens have visited this earth. Right. And on most days, that's my feeling as well. But uh, in having done uh, the, the podcast, having spoken to you guys, uh, you know, we have, uh, we all, Brian and I will say there's this like double density scale of ufology where like a one is um, like Phila J class and like a four is... Um, who do we say is a four? Like David Ike? Whitley Striebler? Whitley yeah, Striebler. Striebler. Well, yeah. let's not put uh, David Ike on the scale at all. Let's go with Striebler. Yeah, David Ike doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't deserve yeah. to okay, be so associated with I think with Whitley, so Whitley Striebler is a good then. four, yeah. All right. So like I'm like a 1.5, maybe a two. Uh, Brian's like a 2.5. Sam, Rob, we established you guys like our three or 3.5. I said I was probably a two and a half to oh, three. Two, okay, I used to be to a, I used to be between three and four. Okay. Like, uh, I, but I, I, I came back and I think a lot of that is from my friendships with people like Chris Cogswell mm. and, yeah. and stuff like that and saying, Hey, you got to rule out all of the, you know, explainable stuff before you can go on and say, Hey, this is something else. And I think that's an sorry, I think that's an interesting perspective because I feel like that is the kind of thing that Jan Allen Hynek was championing, the idea of empowering people to make the decisions in order to make up their minds about what they saw. Mm-hmm. With Hynek and what he was studying, people kept trying to push the extraterrestrial hypothesis onto him, even though he was not saying that it was extraterrestrial at all. And again that's uh, that's also where the field was at the time too it's like he's the most serious guy studying this what is everybody else what is what is a guy writing a book like flying saucer serious business uh you know (laughs) Uh, where's he coming from because i can tell you he he ain't on the heineck level that's for sure and like (laughs) even even like Jacques Vallée, he's definitely, uh, you know, him and uh, Heineck kind of moved in the same direction, you know, once you get into the 70s and stuff like that. And uh, I hate to do this, but I'm throwing sh- some shade at Jacques Vallée right now. Oh, uh, now, buddy. No, I'm throwing Whoa shade. Now. I'm throwing shade. I'm I, throwing shade. And I think okay. I'm going to agree with what you're about to say, but go ahead. There was uh, when uh, he was talking about the Dick uh, Cavett interview. And there's this little little quote in it and say of Jacques Vallée saying, "Oh well, uh, I'm glad I didn't go to that to you know be berated of like you freaking coward. Don't give me that <laughs> crap. Oh, I'm so I, I'm glad I stayed home. I didn't go. I was like, and there's Jay Allen Hynek taking it for the team, taking it and like, come on, Vallée, come on." Like, One, I disagree, like, but whatever. And I, I think that's yeah. <laughs> I think it's a very telling kind of way in which you you handle your battles. There, you either you know you stand up or you wait in the green room. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like that is the one moment in this book that I, and like, here's the thing, like, 
there are these little subtle digs that he throws at Heineck in, like in this book. Like, you know, he quotes uh, Valet saying, you know, certain thing, you know, certain things. But like that was the one where I got really angry. Yeah. I'm like, stand up for what you believe in, man. Like, that's what he's doing. And that's what he has done throughout his entire career. Even even if, you know, 1966 was a misstep, you know. I'd he, like to he, point he out. Stayed as true I'd to like as he to could. point out yeah, as early okay. as the year 1960, with the formation of the Invisible College at Northwestern University, yeah. J. Allen Hynek yeah. was being persuaded or attempted to be persuaded by Jacques Vallée to go public with his his theories and his information, and and he sat back and said. No, no, I'm not going to do that. No, it's going to lead to criticism, ridicule. It's going to take away my credibility and make me a less effective researcher and a less effective advocate here. I think that there is absolutely nothing wrong with not going into a debate that you know you you probably have a really good idea going in that it's going to be one-sided and it's going to really hurt your public image especially to the people who not that the common man doesn't matter but especially to the people who can do something about the advancement of ufo ufology and and all of that i don't think that i don't think valet's a coward it takes a very very brave man to say you know those those fairies man I think they're goddamn aliens, and that's a very brave thing to say. Also, please edit out my swear words there. I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> so that's my I, feeling I, about I all of that. this. <laughs> yeah, they'll be bleeped. Thank you so much. No, for sure, yeah. I just, I got a little The other thing, that. too, is I, I feel like... um. Yeah, okay, Jacques Vallée positions himself as a researcher, but I feel he's more of a chronicler, whereas mm. I think Jane Allen Hynek stuck more um, to the facts as a basis, and I think that's the subtle difference I'm making between the two when I read their works. I agree completely, yeah. yeah. No, I agree with that. Just to get things straight, Rob, you, if in Jane Allen Hynek's position, you would have gone to this debate. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. I don't, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let that turtleneck wearing son of a bitch, you know, keep me from saying anything about UFOs. I will say whatever the hell I want about UFOs. I will be as logical as I can about it. But that son of a bitch, if he thinks he's uh, throwing the extraterrestrial hypothesis on me, I'll make him meet his words. I don't care. And, and like you get glimpses in this book of like Heineck knowing what Sagan is doing. Oh, for sure. And yet, he does not do much to counter it because he's just like, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to sit here and take it because he's the, he's the guy I'm, I'm the, I'm the UFO guy. And like, I don't think Heineck's image was completely tarnished by anything that he's ever done. Like, I think from certain camps, yes. But like, if you look at the Dexter Hillsdale, he, he was popular after that. Like it, it, it didn't totally cast shade at him. No, for sure. I, I also think the fact that like nothing exists uh, in terms of an actual audio or video recording of um, this debate also kind of helps the legacy a little bit. Oh yeah, it, it, absolutely. But like, Heineck is almost unimpeachable in 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 a way because he he his character is great. He's a pretty funny guy. Like everybody loves that guy. He, he loved him to to the point where I cried at the end of this toward the end of this dang book when his students are like throwing this banner down from up in the rafters and 
Oh, it's so emotional. So, so emotional, just to, you guys. to rewind so a sec, uh, Rob, you're in. Sam, you're staying home from this debate, is what I'm, I'm understanding. I'm not going to go. This, so the modern day equivalent <laughs> is Neil deGrasse Tyson, as we can all agree. Can you even imagine getting into a debate with Neil deGrasse Tyson about, not about, again, not about aliens out there somewhere, but aliens being here. It sounds like a terrible time. I have nothing but respect for the man. I went and I saw him when he was here in Boise, and it was like one of the greatest, greatest times of my life. But I know how the, I know I have talked to enough people about aliens to know how people react when you talk about aliens. <laughs> and those are the people who don't even know anything. The people who know things like like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, I know how it's going to end up and I'm not interested. Thank you very much. Now, if, J- if, if, <laughs> if Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to DM me and get at me about this, maybe we'll make it happen. But So Sam, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is <laughs> not alone pod. Perfect. So uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson sliding into those DMs, <laughs> demanding information about alien culture. Angel, are you staying home? Or are you stepping up? I get to meet Carl Sagan. I'm definitely he's going. there. Even yeah. if he's like talking <laughs> about you, I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat pastries with him. Flip my oh hair. Oh my god, this is beautiful. <laughs> and see, uh, that's the thing too. Is I kind of agree with you in that I feel like it'd be a great time to troll someone on a public forum, right? Like just the idea of undermining every one of his points with like utter stupidity and like weird tangents and seeing where that goes. Oh, yeah, and maybe- just, yeah. Like, uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. How do you, yeah. So how do you explain the reptiles? Huh? Huh? The real family? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. How do you explain like, the real if- family? They're reptiles. Well, essentially what think- it comes down to is, is remember Ken Ham versus Bill Nye. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, Not man. saying yeah. anything about oh, any side there, but yeah. that's essentially what it comes down yeah. to. I don't know. I feel like I'd have a good time. Well, who who is it? It's I think it's it's uh, Richard Dawkins who refuses to to to, to debate anybody about right. evolution. He refuses to to dock with anyone. To what? That that <laughs> was mentally like mental mental such docking. A reach. <laughs> I know. I know. I tried to get my. I'm clearly not the master of dad jokes that Angelo is. No, but I also not don't have two kids. Funny as my and look. Uh, Jalen Hynek was a master of dad jokes too. When he first introduced himself to his students, he said, my name is Hynek as in giraffe. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Papa Hynek though. So uh, something that I definitely think we should touch on tonight is Papa Hynek's close encounter scale. It's a storied and well used in a way. Even people today uh, describe their experiences using this, right? So the, the first three, uh, were directly created by Heineck himself. But then four through seven have kind of existed both when he was alive and after he had died um, sort of uh, outside of the realm of like control. Right. So, I mean, we go from the first kind, which is, you know, just a visual setting all the way to the seventh kind, which is literally uh, a human banging an alien or vice versa and making a child. Well, there doesn't have to be any intercourse for this to occur. You know, there's different ways of doing it. Okay. Oh, f- for sure. For sure. I just want to use the word banging. Banger. I, don't I mean, there, get to. that's not to say that there haven't been some because uh, I'm Love interviewing and someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm interviewing the director of that tomorrow. And that's what Dave Huggins claims. And there's Antonio Villasporas. And uh, there's another guy. I can't remember the guy that had uh, a hair wrapped around his. OK, but we'll. Um... <laughs> I haven't heard a hair but, rapper. Uh, this is, heard this is my favorite digression so far. What? You didn't no. hear that? You didn't hear about the hair being wrapped around his hula? No. Like, and also, that's not uh, yeah. one of the things we call that. 
<laughs> well, you know, that's that's what I called it here. If you're, so. if you're calling that, you're not old enough to do it. Um, <laughs> have you guys seen... Development. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you're calling it pop-pop. Um, right. Have you seen, uh, just as an aside, have you guys seen the David Huggins... Uh, um, uh, art, I guess yeah. is the best way yes. to put it. Yeah, I've, I've seen the documentary. It's a great documentary. Okay. Because I was reading um, the Vice article about that because they interviewed him recently too, and I thought that was really interesting. And I just I couldn't stop looking at the weird art. Like, it's just yeah, I don't know. It's, it's I actually kind of want to get my hands on the book uh, because there was a, somebody who released uh, who uh, scanned all of it and put it into a book like uh, maybe five or so years ago. Well, you know, Christmas is coming up. Happy New Year, by the way, guys. Oh, Happy New Year. What? It's February. We're going to wonder when we recorded What the heck? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Have you not listened to Double Density? That's how Brian I'm going to August. every episode. I'm going now. to August at least. <laughs> All right. That's fair. <laughs> Anyways, um, Rob, you're making really good points today on a more serious note about the, the idea of the close encounter scale and the idea of it being called close encounters, which I thought was really interesting. Well, yeah, because when we talk about a close encounter and like maybe Heineck wasn't thinking about this, but... We want to get close to something to to figure out what the heck it is or just to be close to it. You know, um, we always have that saying, seeing is believing. That may be true, but seeing is not understanding. And and to me that I feel like Heineck understood that he understood that a lot. And to me, like when I saw the title of this book, The Close Encounters, man. I thought it was the dumbest title of of, of a biography of J. Allen Hynek because, like, that's more, you know, he was more than that. But, like, when you come to think of it and, like, you come to see his stance, you know, over time, he just wanted to get as close to this as he could, you know, and, and figure out what the heck this was. And uh, that's the brilliance of The Close Encounter get as close as you can and like once you push past close encounter of the third kind well they're a little too close they need to back the hell up for a minute <laughs> that. well that was my follow-up question is just the idea of like the fourth through seventh kind of being i don't want to use the word bastardized but kind of like uh derivatives i guess would be the uh diplomatic way of saying it um interesting i don't consider them nearly as canonical as the first three though not at all no and um <sighs> Even like I won't use Close Encounter of the Fourth Kind on my show. I just I won't because that to me is where every single person who claims that they've ever had contact with some kind of otherworldly being, they automatically get pushed into that. And I've made this point on, on other shows, but um, like when we talk about the abduction experience, essentially what Dave Huggins describes are abduction experiences. Dave Huggins wouldn't see himself as an abductee because he views his experiences as positive. So I, I tend to put him in like the contactee kind of thing, which, you know, uh, my scale is abductee is a negative experience. Contactee is a positive experience and experiencers in the middle. And they don't get necessarily anything from it. And that's, that's the thing. I don't like, uh, four through seven and like there's i think there's all the way up to nine which are like ridiculous like they they just keep like adding on to it and like i'm pretty sure stephen greer is somewhat involved in that yeah he well he coined the fifth one yeah yeah i mean the fourth one the fourth one originated from you know jacques Jacques Vallee, kind of 
yeah, and then like the fifth one's, you know, uh, Greer's C SETI group, and then onwards and upwards or downwards, depending on how you see it, right? Um, I, I'm pretty sure he's, he's like down on the ground right now with his crap. I'm, <laughs> I'm just stomping all over it. Wow. Call out. So, but looking at it from a scientific perspective or i guess i'm not a scientist looking at it from an analytical perspective you know what you are oh my god congrats (laughs) thank you (laughs) um i i don't agree with all of the ways that this goes down i don't agree going to i have never heard of anything past close encounter of the seventh kind uh which personally i don't think happens but that's just me but I do think that there needs to be some different designation beyond CE3, especially for an abduction scenario, or not even abduction, but contact in, in any way. Whereas CE3, of course, is just the observation of a of a pilot or an occupant of a craft, whether it's biological, mechanical, or anything like that. So how should we categorize these things, if not as a close encounter of the fourth kind? Well, I mean, like, when you when you look at Hynek's work and you go and you pick up a copy of the Hynek UFO report, um, I'm pretty sure most people wouldn't categorize the Kelly Hopkinsville uh, encounter as a close encounter of the third kind. They were pretty aggressive. They 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 uh, while they weren't like overly aggressive, like there was that one family member that one of them pulled the hair of. But um, well, owls tend to do that. Oh, owls all the oh time. My no, God. No. Enough with your owls. Enough with your owls, Angela. I, I just said that to here. get a reaction out of Sam. Yeah. Jason was talking about owls this week on his swamp special, and it just pissed me off. I was just so. <laughs> well, I mean, like anybody's. Yeah, I can understand. But that's what you get with the Jason special, though. I know. I love the. Just as a side note, I love my co host. I don't know why he's not here. We invited him to the DM, but he's so scared of Twitter, he just decided not to participate. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to see if I can get him going forward. He's great. He did a great special. But to be uh, on the other side of it, he almost talked me into saying that an owl was an acceptable explanation for Mothman because he showed me all these pictures of really big owls. And then... (laughs) And then somebody on, these owls. on they're so big. Somebody on Twitter sent me a picture of a normal sized owl, which is like a foot tall, if even that. And ever since yeah. then, owls have just left a bad taste in my mouth. Not because they are bad, but because I was stupid enough to be recorded saying, "Okay, maybe it could be an owl." And now I have to fight against that for the rest of my life. Very quick question: uh, Were the like how proficient is uh, Jason at Photoshop? Firstly, I think that's a good question. To He's ask. a digital artist, but I don't think he could Photoshop <laughs> something. I don't. I don't think that's his forte. Okay, so he didn't create no, these no, images no, no, to no, show no. you. They oh. were they were real pictures of really big owls, but that's all they were. Have you guys discussed the Chicago Mothman at all? You know, we I think we alluded it alluded to it at the end of our Mothman series, but at that point. Our Mothman series was was coming off the back of our Skinwalker Ranch series, and we were really getting sick of doing serieses. So we kind of just mentioned, oh, people have been saying it. So he wants to do like a where are they now segment when it comes to cryptids. <laughs> I think it's a good idea, and I think that's going to be one that we do in the future. I really hope that he flips pieces of paper in front of you and you have to guess what's going on like a game show. <laughs> yes, exactly that. <laughs> 
so given Heineck's brush with celluloid fame, uh, you know, and the probably the most famous cameo he's ever had in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I kind of want to veer towards a cinematic question for you guys. So Close Encounters, so Mark O'Connell has indicated that he would love to see Martin Freeman cast as J. Allen Heineck. Who would you guys like to see uh, cast in that role? Well, uh, right now there's that uh, Blue Book TV mm-hmm. show that's coming yeah. out by Robert Zemeckis, and it's going to be... Uh, um, Aiden Gillen yeah, from Baelish. Um, yeah, Baelish yeah. and also Carcetti from uh, The Wire. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I can see that. Um, put a put a beard on him and give him a pipe. And uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Martin Freeman is not a bad choice either. I have a stock answer for whenever anybody asks me who should play a certain role. And that is, of course, Idris Elba. However, because Idris Elba oh, is British, yeah. I don't know if it would work very well. So, well, the other two are British as well. Oh, really? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yes, you're right. I want to yes. throw another Brit into the mix. Actually, I want to say Richard Ayoade. I don't oh. know who that is. Mm-hmm. What am I missing out on? From the IT crowd? Oh crap, Moss, yeah. the guy with the hair. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah. That would be good. Um, Just, I picture him wearing all of the gear that that Alan kind of had, and I feel like it would work really well. Wait, if we're going to let it be a non-American, here's what it is. It's Christoph Waltz. That's who you get. I'd be down Mm. with that. I like that, actually. I would would throw my my name in the hat, uh, Gary Oldman. Oh, you're so right. You're so right. Of course it's Gary Oldman. Can't it be Tom Hanks? No, it can't be Tom Hanks. Uh, listen, I was going to go with Tom Hanks. He was in my head, but I was just like, I cast Tom Hanks in everything, and I'm like, no, Gary yeah. Oldman would be perfect uh, for this. You, you know what, guys? I just got it. John Cena. Do, 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 do. You can't see him. You can't do, see him. Do. You can't see him. Can't, how could you cast a man in a movie that you can't, you can't see, Angelo? See That's a ghost I movie. Would just, I, I, would, I would live to watch him like deliver an attitude adjustment to Carl Sagan like that would be amazing <laughs> I want to go back in time and just reinsert entrance music as they stepped up to the podiums or like the chairs or whatever they were sitting in just to like recontextualize a little bit in kind of a wrestler kind of I way I think that'd be fair I think that'd that would be, fair. be interesting because I mean like you know you you have Heineck's involvement with close encounters the third kind you could just play a you know a bit of that soundtrack and he, he you know that would be perfect for him Wow, I'm so proud of you guys for uh, choosing John Cena. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I said Gary Oldman. <laughs> uh, my final question for you guys tonight is um, sort of looking forward. So how do you feel like uh, Jalen Hanek would have handled current ufology um, slash fringe discussions? You know, I mean, if he was unhappy with the discourse that Carl Sagan was pushing, how apoplectic would he be about a, a, a David Icke or an Alex Jones, right? Do you feel like Hynek's honest fact-driven approach would be like washed over in our current climate of yelling at each other with minimal facts? Oh, most definitely. I feel like the 21st century so far has been marked by people wanting to be on one extreme or another. I don't think that there's any any part for a rational-minded individual <laughs> in this this especially this field uh at this time in in the earth's development yeah yeah um um yeah uh i think i think j allen hynek would take a look at the current state of ufology and he'd probably gasp um and i'm not trying to cast shade on people uh, i'm not but um, i am i know you are thanks Sam. but uh <laughs> Um, 
I think this is a field that has largely spun its wheels for the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, a lot of the pioneers are gone. And I don't want to say that the people that are taking up the mantle aren't doing good research or anything like that, but I don't think... Um, I'm just not happy with the state of things in in terms of how what what's being pushed why are we so close-minded to one large theory versus being open like I mean Heineck had his beliefs but he was open because he didn't have proof one way or the other um, you know, towards the end of his life, he be- he believes, yes, there's a, a physical portion to this, but there's also a psychic portion to this. I don't like this whole... I just... I, I really have a tough time with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Not in the fact that I can't accept that, right. but that, that it's the only one, and that can't be. Right. And, that, and, and I think they need to stop turning their wheels on this theory that has largely been persisted since the 1870s, like move off of it. And, and on a, on a note that I made on my episode, uh, the, of course this is coming out, God, like weeks ago, stop throwing shade at Mars. <laughs> Quit looking at pictures of Mars. Like, Oh, Hey, look at that. That's the, look at the face on Mars. There's a Stonehenge on Mars. You see the shadow of the alien on okay, Mars, but Enough. that freaking face on Mars is a weird thing. I hope we can all just agree. Even if it's just natural, it is a very strange thing to have happen. It's a very weird, natural formation. It, it all comes back to unsolved mysteries. And I remember seeing that on unsolved mysteries, I think I was in like grade five or six and it ruined my week. I could not sleep. All I kept seeing was that face just staring at me and the aliens became an X-Files episode. You know, that face is the whole reason that I ever discovered the band Muse. Okay. Because that face. Oh, right. That face. um, It's located in an area of Mars known as Cydonia. And yeah. and Muse, one of their best songs is Knights of Cydonia. And so while Googling that face, I found that. And then, as we all know, Muse went from being an amazing group to a pile of crap and and just <laughs> terribly, terribly producing music. And therefore, that face on Mars also ruined my life, Angelo. So it's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. And I feel sorry for that guy on the X Files. He died. That that guy mm. in NASA. He died. He was haunted by the face on Mars. Oh Lord! <laughs> We've gone down a dark path. Rob, here, I love you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love you too, man. <laughs> you know who uh, that face on Mars did make Richard C. Hoagland rich, though, or uh, not oh, rich, God. but successful. So I mean, like, not all is lost, I guess. I agree. I Brian, agree with you. what is it going to take to get you two in a room together? I really, this like five really bucks. needs to happen. Five hold all five bucks. Like, just point me to the direction of the man with the perfect hair, and like, I'm probably one of the three <laughs> people in the world who still listens to him whenever he's on the air. So. Why? Why do you do that to yourself? Because he's so unhinged, and also he yells at his producer a lot, which I think is hilarious. Um, because uh, in this day and age, you should have a producer who's updating your website uh, that looks like it's from the nineties at all times. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's that is a vital vital um vital to any uh conspiracy theorist and um general yellers, you know, success is updating their 90s looking website. I One mean, of my favorite moves is that he had a guest on before the start of this year and he yelled at the guest to stop talking and email his producer a link so that he could put it up on the website. And I thought that is amazing. <laughs> 20 2017 2018 and we're still yelling for links. Yeah. Some yeah, somebody needs yeah. to point them to Squarespace. <laughs> or any other like Wix. I, I will say this. He is a dashing looking yeller, like, you know, dashing looking <laughs> professional yeller. I will give this, him that. I feel like we need to break off and start a separate episode of like the top 10 like yellers in ufology. Like, how do they rank and why? Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the lowest uh, would be uh, Philip Class for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at least for me. Yeah. It's a tough one to go from there. I mean, I, I'd really have to think that one out. Stanton Freeman? And I feel like... No, he, no? he's too nice. Stanton, no, he's good. He's like he's, the nicest guy, good. right? He's more of a pointer. He's what? I feel like I feel like he points more than he yells. Maybe. He's, he's, he's practically Canadian. Yeah, but he also believes that the MJ-12 documents are real. Yeah. All of you, them. Uh, well, so when we were talking about Carl Sagan before, did you guys ever see that TV show? I think it was called Dark Skies. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I remember. Seven it. of Nine was in it before she was Seven of Nine. And yeah. uh, it was all about MJ-12, and Carl Sagan was one of the 12. Oh. Well, I mean, like, you have you have groups called, like, the Aviary, which supposedly uh, puts disinformation out there. And uh, people part of that, uh, John Hoagland, or... No. Oh. Get my names right. God damn it. John B. Alexander. John B. Alexander. Uh, Hal Potoff is supposedly a part of this. And Jacques Vallée. Okay. All right. Oh, they even have so code names. Thing, of course. Stop it. And for another thing. <laughs> also, for another thing, Hal Potoff is not a disinformation agent. He was a freaking head of NIDS. That'd be a terrible, uh, terrible place for a disinformation object uh, or person. To yeah, be. John Alexander was there too. Yeah, and then thirdly, don't yeah. you have a? It's the perfect place for disinformation. Rob, don't you have a disinformation <laughs> agent liking your crap on on Facebook, and therefore, oh, aren't the you yeah. a disinformation? You are disinformation. You're all this. I know the truth. Me laying in bed. <laughs> No pants on. I know what's going on here. You're all disinformation. Oh, yeah, really? Just, um, <laughs> I know. The I don't truth. know if we're going to leave that one out or not, but uh, I'm voting to leave that in. Uh, <laughs> Sam, I feel like I, I can't wait to read your 700 page no uh, paragraph screed about how we're all just implicated. You, we are all implicated, except for me. You're implicated. I'm just here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to end this before it devolves even Well, further. it's devolved, buddy, so... <laughs> Well, whoa, 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 whoa! I've got to be able to defend my good name here. Are you all kidding right. me? Well, disinformation. Okay. Right. Rob, it is your show. Yeah, Rob. that's true. It's your show. You can defend yourself if you want. Brian right, cannot. I'm gonna get comfortable. I'm gonna get, this this should be good. Um, I will tell you why I am not a disinformation agent. For one, I'm too open minded. Damn it! I'm not <laughs> closed minded to start putting the ETH out there and all that crap. No, I'm not that. I'm not that closed minded. Come on. Come on. Um, two, this is, let's be honest. The only reason you're throwing shade at me is because I've been throwing shade at Jacques Vallée all night long. That's the only reason. Well, I, you do have an actual person who 
has been pointed to as a disinformation. It's on a face. It's on a Facebook group. I do. I'm not friends with the man. I will never be friends with Richard right. Doty. Never, never. But the man has emerged on social it's media. It's very and strange. Like his his profile picture is from like the 70s, and it's so weird. This is speaking to me. If he likes you on Facebook, there's a chance he's listening to this right now. Yeah, that's what's spooky about this. No, no, he's 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 not. He's actually paranoid these days. Oh, okay. So he doesn't yeah. click on any links even though he's on Facebook? Doesn't he know what Facebook is? Of course he does, but you know. <laughs> you gotta you've gotta if you're pushing disinformation out out there, you gotta make them think that you don't know what Facebook is. Whoa. All right. Uh, two I'm quick sorry. points to to Rob's points. Uh firstly, uh, if you have to say this is why I'm not a disinformation agent, you probably are yeah, a exactly. Agent. <laughs> uh, I want to, uh, I need you to prove this uh immediately. Secondly, though, uh, I feel like um, Sam is just using some uh, misdirection because he himself is actually a disinformation uh, agent. Oh, 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 oh. We're going down the yeah, rabbit hole. Yeah, I should have oh, known no. that the uh, no pants on was a sign for disinformation. That is the code I should have known that. But, uh, Where's Jason tonight? I guess he's at his NWO meeting. <laughs> yes. You know, Wait, I guess with, the, is he there with Hulk Hogan and yes. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash <laughs> and everyone on the mid nineties WCW roster except oh, for Kevin Sting. Nash as yeah. no Sting was NWO Wolfpack. <laughs> so much you're saying just something happened. Credible and serious while we're talking about wrestling. So go on. I, so. Well, no, I said Kevin Nash as Jay Allen Hynek. Perfect. Oh, no, he's too tall. Oh, he's no, too tall. he'd be perfect. He'd tower no, over Carl too- Sagan. <laughs> from Magic Mike XXL you get, to Jalen Hynek. Right. You get Danny DeVito to play Carl Sagan. Oh, God. <laughs> and he just like jackknife power bombs him into the podium. <laughs> what a film. I feel like we should be writing the script of this, guys. I'm just throwing this out there that maybe this is a, a, a larger project to discuss offline. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have uh, my agent get in touch with yours and uh, we're going to make Your this disinformation work. Agent. Actual agent or disinformation agent? Ah. <laughs> Uh, dad joke from Brian. Regaining my, my dad disinformation joke agent. I am. I it's now do regret. I apologize for calling all of you disinformation agents. I realized that was not an appropriate reaction. <laughs> Apology accepted. <laughs> Thank you, Angela. When I started recording this evening, I did not think I'd hear that sentence come out of anywhere. So, Sam, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. This is like, you know, we, we've gone through the motions this entire episode, and I feel like I've gone through 95% of them. So um, it's like we're back at square one. I, I dig it. There's symmetry happening here. It's beautiful. So on a scale yeah. of zero to five crop circles, how many crop circles would you give uh, The Close Encounters Man by Marco Connell? No, I think, I think, we, need, I think we need a no, different scale. I think that's scale. a pretty damn good okay. scale. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I think we need the Heineck scale here. Oh, we need the Heineck scale. Seven out of seven would copulate with. We go from a a meandering nocturnal light all the way up to a close encounter of the third kind. Oh, we're only doing three? We're not doing seven? We got to do seven. No, well, I mean, there's six. There's six. There's there's the nocturnal lights, the daylight discs, the radar visual, close encounter one, two, and three. I will do, okay, I will do my favorite of the, because the, 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 I'm now going to admit it was not a hundred pages. It was 70 pages. I just didn't want you all to be mad at me. The 70 pages. So the disinformation if we have another hour now. of this, like you're going to go down to 30 oh, pages. Oh no. Uh, the, the, I read the cover. The 70 pages I read of this book 
I would rate it my favorite on the UFO ufology scale, which is actually a close encounter of the third kind subtype F, which is, right, so you have a close encounter of the third kind, right? You see uh, an occupant of a craft, how, craft. however, subtype Subtype F is that you actually don't see an alien, or I'm sorry, you don't see an occupant of a UFO, and you also don't see a UFO, but something feels a little weird. So that's what I'm going to rate this. It just, this whole thing just seems a little weird to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite of the designations. Did you, how were your book reports as a child? Oh, they were terrible. I, the only book I ever read in high school was The Great Gatsby. I read it about 12 times because I really hate the American dream. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, I, I oh, read. I see, pulling for communist Russia, right? eh? All right. I read absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and I spark noted everything. But you can't spark note this book. So I, <laughs> believe me, I tried. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Rob? I'm going to give this book a close encounter of the third kind, subtype B. An entity is observed inside and outside the Boom. UFO. Yeah, that's right. I love this book. <laughs> Angela, how's about you? Definitely third kind. I'm going with subtype C. Entity observed near a UFO, but not going in or out. There we go. <laughs> Just around. <laughs> <laughs> as for me i'm going with close encounter of the third kind subtype a in entities observed only inside the ufo and the thing is the entity is waving at me there we go oh just oh, like, so father, like it's, gill, uh, yeah. father gill here yeah, yeah. exactly Ex- the ufo wants me to engage with it but not board it for whatever reason you, you know you guys should let me in etc cetera, etc cetera. but i'm willing to accept <laughs> a friendly alien wave awesome peace between awesome. worlds <laughs> <laughs> so uh uh before uh before we leave then as we've thrown so much shade <laughs> this episode at each other uh uh we'll start with uh brian and angela where where can we find you on the internet do you want to take this one for once angela no i let you take it you do so well you have the radio voice of the two of us <laughs> <laughs> oh here we go <laughs> You can find Double Density on Twitter at double underscore density. You can visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. You can also head over to our website, doubledensity.net. You can uh, click on the host page to get an idea of what we look like. That's kind of fun. You can also uh, visit our old episodes as well as read some articles and contact us uh, directly via email. If you want to send us spam, go ahead, send us spam. Nice. Oh, that's great. Sam? So you can find me. I'm Sam. I am at uh, Not Alone Pod on Twitter. So that's the podcast account for the Not Alone, or that's the Twitter account for the Not Alone Podcast. You can find me there. You can find Jason, who's not here, but I'm going to try to make him come. If Are we doing this again? I'd like to. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think we uh, have right. to. <laughs> we are contractually obligated. Uh, you can find Jason at Mighty Moit. Um, you can find not alone on absolutely every podcast platform. You can go to not alone podcast.com, uh, find us there, find us on Facebook, Instagram, both at not alone podcast. And you can also email me spam at a not alone podcast at gmail.com. If you, <laughs> if you want, or any disinformation, please no disinformation. I am <laughs> simply too stupid to know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> listen let's be honest if it has anything to do with ufo mythology it's probably disinformation (laughs) 
Rob, where can we find you? Oh, all right. <laughs> oh, so if you want to email the show, you can email it uh, at uh, ourstrangeguys at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. We have a great Facebook group, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. Come join us over there. And uh, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. Yeah.